Christianity has dominated the imagination of half the race during the last fifteen centuries by means of two entirely different symbols. One is the crucifix, the sombre reminder of sin and repentance, of lurid flames and atoning blood, of the call to stifle the most thrilling impulses of our nature. The other is the manger, the cradle of the newborn divine babe, the emblem of joy and warmth and generosity, the excuse to let the poor heart follow its impulses. The Christian religion, in its original form, was compelled to compromise with human nature. In Paul, the one sure witness to its beliefs in the half-century after Christ, it is an entirely joyless creed. Even the resurrection is hailed only with a sigh of relief, because hell is less certain than it would otherwise have been. The epistles, which reflect the earliest Christian community, are a dirge. The scarlet letter, sin, is branded on every fair part of human nature. Flowers do not exist. Wine is a medicine. Such a religion would have appealed to a few hundred thousand in the Greco-Roman world. We shall see in the last chapter that there were in it a dozen, a score, of such religions. But Christian priests were ambitious, and they compromised. The birth of Christ was discovered to be an occasion for joy. The virgin and child were raised to the altar. Puritans groaned, but the world had to be won, and only thus could it be won. Protestantism, in the sixteenth century, frowned upon the virgin, and once more made the cross the sole emblem of Christianity. And once more, religion was forced to compromise. In the land of Luther, Christmas is celebrated with enthusiasm. Good Friday is tolerated. In Protestant Britain, Christmas is immeasurably the greatest festival of life. On Good Friday, men go about their work as usual. America has felt the blight of Puritanism more deeply, and the heart has had its revenge in other ways. Yet even to the American fundamentalist, the lineal descendant of the Puritan father, the supreme dogma of the faith is that the God of the universe was incarnated in the womb of a Jewish maid. And there are a few doctrines of the Christian faith so vulnerable, so slight in their foundation, as this of the virgin birth of Jesus. It is the feeblest statement about Jesus in the whole of the Gospels. It is unknown to Paul. It grows under our eyes in the New Testament. And from end to end of the Greco-Roman world, in which the books of the New Testament were gradually evolved, we find the mythical material which is successively wrought into the familiar story. Let us first examine the story in the Gospels. The earliest Christian writings, we saw in another volume, are Paul's epistles. Paul insists that Jesus was born of a woman, but who the woman was, he cares not the toss of a coin, and he knows of no miracle in the conception. The next writing, chronologically, is the Gospel of Mark. As we have it, there is no proof that it existed within forty years of the death of Christ, yet it is ignorant of the tremendous miracle of the virgin birth. Jesus, in Mark, enters history, becomes more than an ordinary man at the age of thirty. Apparently, the original Mark was just a description of a singularly gifted prophet who was called by God, or converted by John, in his early manhood. Matthew, the next gospel, 
also seems, in its original form, to have known nothing unusual about the birth of Jesus. The first two chapters are an afterthought. The Gospel really begins at the third chapter, as that of Mark does. Then someone prefaced it with one of the two genealogies of Jesus that were in circulation, chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Next, the new beginning is quite clear. Somebody added a short account of how Jesus was born, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Lastly, some other hand added the legends of chapter 2, with which we will deal later. Luke, a later gospel, has a much more developed version of the conception and the birth. 